These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Rock me like a hurricane, Higher Side Chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and we are well aware of the sorry state of Rockefeller medicine and the petro pill pushing pharmaceutical industry. Offering up financially motivated solutions that often come with a big laundry list of negative effects for the one symptom they might make go away. We've seen the demonization of natural ways, herbology, holistic medicine, energy healing, and a wide range of non-invasive, non-chemical-based options that still manage powerful results, despite them being pushed out of any academic circles and dismissed as primitive woo-woo nonsense. But of all the logs on the health and medicine fire, the darkest, saddest, and most extreme is the Western industrial ways of treating mental health. MKUltra experiments, lobotomies, electroshock therapy, and a legacy of insane asylum facilities that operated more like torture prisons than any sort of hospitals. Not to mention the drugs given out for depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and a wide range of categorized and labeled mental conditions are often the most harsh and dangerous of all. That said, I was recently blown away by the book of today's guest, Jerry M. Cantor, entitled Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. In it, he resurrects a forgotten history of utopian-esque healing centers in the 19th century that never really make it into conventional medical education, though they were very widespread, very effective, and of course snuffed out as the competition for the cold, capital-driven industry it's become. Jerry himself is a faculty member of the Ontario College of Homeopathic Medicine and owner of Vital Force Healthcare LLC, a Boston-area homeopathy and acupuncture practice. He also has the pleasure of being the first acupuncturist to receive an academic appointment at Harvard Medical School's Department of Anesthesiology, as well as being his own publisher with Right Whale Press, putting out previous books like Interpreting Chronic Illness, the Convergence of Traditional Chinese Medicine, Homeopathy, and Biomedicine, The Toxic Relationship Cure, Clearing Traumatic Damage from a Boss, Parent, Lover, or Friend with Natural Drug-Free Remedies, and The Autism Reversal Toolbox. 
Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have him here, the homeopathic healer, hidden history restorer, and shining light in the darkness. Mr. Cantor, my good man, welcome to the higher side. Greg, I have never heard an introduction like that. <laughs> that is fabulous. Uh, so thanks. <laughs> All part of the old nine to five around here, but thank you for doing this. I first heard you on with my friend Gordon of Rune Soup. And I just had to poach you for my own show because I've been very interested in missing chapters of history and methods of healing outside of our conventional system. And this book taught me a lot about both. I think many of us hear homeopathy and we think diluted medicine or weak medicine. But now I know the term nanoparticle cross adaption. And we've learned in previous episodes some interesting things about water memory that may or may not relate. But talk to us about how you view homeopathy, how it relates to psychiatry, and what the mechanisms are that drive it. Wow, that's a big question. It is. Um, <laughs> well, I'll give you one of my little uh, talks that I give to clients. Yeah, so homeopathy, like Chinese medicine, like acupuncture, does something really simple. You know, when I was in junior high school, I had a teacher who said something that caught my attention. She said that, no definition of living a living thing is complete without including irritability. That means a living thing, you poke it, and it reacts. I thought that was pretty funny, and I didn't really know what to make of that till much later on. So acupuncture pokes you. It's a mini, 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 mini stabbing. And homeopathy is a mini, 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 mini poisoning. Hmm. So both of these methods exploit the body's irritability. So, well, okay, but how you poke and when you poke, that's the key thing. Okay, back to homeopathy, because people have a pretty decent idea of acupuncture, I think. Mm -hmm. When I'm talking about it at the level of common sense, I'll tell people that a, a good remedy is like a permission slip to the subconscious. We don't call it the subconscious in homeopathy, we call it the vital force. And the difference is that the vital force is the subconscious, but imbued with all kinds of, all the physical capabilities of the body. It's one of the same thing. It's not something separate as in the mind. So a remedy, when it matches the person really well, it releases a reaction that really wants to happen, but has not been able to happen. Why has it not been able to happen? Because the trauma that caused it or the, the events that's responsible, maybe, and that could be something inherited, was too big, too constant to be overcome. We are basically designed to overcome everything. We have this brilliant immune system, which the homeopaths have called the vital force, because it's not simply at the physical level. But basically, it keeps us healthy by episodes of acute illness. Acute illness detoxifies us. And what's good about that, we usually generally survive acute illness. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it involves the body identifying a pathogen or a, an emotional assault mobilizing against it with either uh, an immune response, histamines and antibodies, or at the emotional level, pulling out one of the five emotional tools in our inborn toolkit, you know, anger, grief, worry, fear, and joy, and overcome it. Like a tool, each of those emotions is supposed to be used and then put away when you're done with it. So where was I going? You're asking about psychiatry here. Yeah, and also the mechanisms that make homeopathy work. Yeah. So that's really the question, right? It's so global. It's our tendency in the modern world is to describe things in reductionist terms, and that simply won't work with homeopathy. When you take a remedy that matches you, well, let's go back to how homeopathy is researched, right? 
the inverse of the law of similars. The law of similars is using like to cure like. The inverse of that I would call the law of inculcation, and that applies to homeopathic research. So let's say we get 10 people who have nothing in common with any particular client, but they're healthy, so 10 individuals, and they agree to keep their lives stable over a period of three or four months, and they take this substance, a mystery substance, every day for those several months, and they keep journals. No matter how varied they are, if this condition is carried out, that's called approving. And at the end of that period of time, they forward their journals, they've been keeping journals all along, to the head proving master, and then this big collation job takes place, which collate out from their journals the symptoms that are strange, unusual, peculiar, as opposed to ones that are random and, and just too common to be of use. And those provide the picture, the remedy picture of that substance. And the substance can be a botanical, it can be a, a mineral compound, it could be the venom of a snake or the venom in a bee sting. Point is, it's a blinded research study. And at the end of that, we get a very, very clear idea of the state that gets inculcated in healthy people by that substance. And that information gets put into the Materia Medica. So for example, if you make a silly example of this, if nine out of 10 people respond that on day 15, or somewhere in the second month, whenever they saw a piano, they sneezed, as ridiculous as that is, that's a useful symptom. Hmm. Not that you want to cure that, but that might be such a specific clue to that substance that it would enter the Materia Medica. And, and any time you encountered that, that remedy would come up. On the other hand, if a guy, someone said in the second week that he got a terrible headache, but come to think of it, a rock fell on his head just before that, we don't count that. <laughs> <laughs> so the Materia Medica then is this amazing book which describes all the actions all the effects that a substance can have on a person at the mental, emotional, and physical level. It doesn't discriminate between what we like and what we don't like. And so in contrast to two other books, let me compare it to a toxicology book, which only talks about the bad effects a substance can bring about, or the physician's desk reference, which talks only about, well, it talks about the wonderful things that a drug does and behaves very, in a very embarrassed fashion about the so-called side effects. Both of those two books are dishonest in comparison with the Materia Medica of homeopathy. So we get this very total picture of what a substance does. Then the other book in homeopathy is called The Repertory, and that's an index of every symptom, and many versions of this, by the way, but it's an index of every symptom a human being can have, referencing back to the remedy. So homeopaths toggle between those two books all the time, trying to find out the remedy that matches you so that they can then apply the law of similars. And then when you give the remedy that matches you, that would cause the symptoms that you have at the mental, emotional, and physical level, the homeopath says, well, okay, it's as if you've been poisoned by arsenic. Well, you haven't really, I don't suppose you have, but everything about you fits that profile. So a tiny, 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 tiny amount of arsenic, this many, many poisoning I've been talking about, will give that to you to exploit your inherent irritability and release this global response that is waiting to happen, this permission slip to the vital force. Hmm. And then over a period of weeks and weeks, this processing takes place that brings many, many benefits. Uh, that's a, I don't know, is that too simple <laughs> or is that too complicated? I can't no, tell. no, that's good. That's good. I appreciate that. And it is interesting because, yes, there's a quote in the book where you say, 
for homeopathy are basic commonalities, our organs, systems, bone structure, or agreeing that what constitutes reality as a settled matter are of minor importance, and it's more about like what makes people unique or different, and that's just such a flip on the usual script. And there's a, a line from the blog that you know I think is pretty interesting where you say homeopathic products are so diluted the originating substance is no longer detectable by any laboratory test, yet the remedies work. And you kind of gave us a little bit there about how they work in terms of triggering or kind of coaching or leading the body to just do its thing as it's supposed to do, you know, trusting the body. But obviously that boggles the mind of a lot of people that something can no longer be detectable yet also work. There's, it seems like there's something metaphysical going on here. Yeah, a couple of things I can add to that. It is, I guess, what we call metaphysical, but you know, I was a philosophy student and you know, the logical positives and so forth in the 20th century tried to kill it, but it never goes away because there's an aspect of truth to it. We do need to have system-wide type of explanations of things. Okay, well, at the energy level, I've got that chapter at the back, which you referred to before about from um, Iris Bell's research. There's a kind of an, an entanglement, an energetic entanglement that human beings have with the essence of these substances. That is really, well, I was not going to say peculiar because it's just life. It's just life. I mean, I, it's hard, hard for me to step outside of this into a state of disbelief. As, <laughs> as a homeopath, I take for granted that everything has a consciousness you know, things that are organic and also non-organic. We have books on, on crystals, books like by Peter Tuminello. And, you know, very matter-of-factly, we talk about the consciousness of one particular kind of crystal structure as opposed to another. The Native Americans always knew this. It's, we have just unlearned something profound because we're so technologically oriented. It's not that strange. Back to another part of your question. So the principle is, is like secure like. It's not identity, it's likeness. So you have to lead the energy a little bit. It's not completely congruent. Congruency is death. It's just a complete flat type of, it's not even a stimulus. If you give something that's exactly the same as yourself, and that's the problem with, oh, a lot of immunology that's trying to mimic homeopathy. If you do exactly what you think the person is, first of all, you've ignored the fact that there are differences about people. You're still acting like people are generic and alike. But second of all, you're not leading the chi. I mean, I'm changing metaphors here. I practiced Aikido for many, many years. And in Aikido, you blend with someone's energy, very similar to homeopathy, but you lead the energy also a little bit. So this is the idea of similarity, not identity. Identity is called tautopathy. And it ignores the fact that it pretends that you're absolutely a generic person. For example, if you bring me five people, and I, I arranged to have each one of them stung by a bee, for a little while, they'll all be exactly the same. They'll have swelling, they'll be in pain, it'll be aggravated by heat. For a little while, they're all the same. But if you wait a couple of hours, as the bee sting trauma starts to abate, all their individual differences will start coming out, and those are the ones that matter. In the acute stage, you don't need to leave the chi at all. It is enough when that state is strong enough to give a tautopathic remedy, but not later on. Interesting. And you used the word trauma, which was going to be another thing I wanted to fold in here because it seems to be a big factor. It seems like 
from a couple of interviews I've heard of yours, you've talked about the engine that drives a lot of our problems being in consciousness, being a trauma at its root core. And that's interesting. I'm curious if you consider multi-generational traumas, past life traumas, birth traumas. I mean, it can get so broad that it's hard to be useful, at least, you know, when I start thinking about the language used, but is every disease, illness, flu, a lot of that stuff, is it at its core a trauma? Let me think how to answer that. First of all, the legacies absolutely do play into how homeopathy works. We absolutely do. Miasmatic theory is really about legacies. And that's going to come out really clearly in a book I've got coming out next year called The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness, Homeopathy for Existential Stress. So let's see. As I say, in battlefield medicine, we are all the same. We can be treated as identical under certain very, very harsh circumstances. Anybody who's shot and you know, is full of shrapnel, for quite a while, they are the same. And yeah, you've got to get the shrapnel out, you've got to stop bleeding, and you've got to prevent sepsis. It doesn't matter who the hell you are. So that does not have its root in consciousness, I have to say. I mean, there are some aspects to that. Everybody might go into shock. Where's the line, Greg, between a state of shock, which is, is there a division between the conscious part of that and the physical part? Your soul kind of leaves your body when you're in shock. That's a consciousness aspect. At the same time, of course, there are these all these emergency actions going on physiologically in you. So, I mean, consciousness is never a part of it. We are living things, and it's only for the sake of convenience or treatment that we pretend that it's not going on there. I mean, in the emergency room, clearly someone's not going to be doing psychotherapy on you. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a very mechanical thing to do. But a little bit later on, and when you come out of that, you better believe that you're going to have to pay attention to how that recovery is going. That's an example I've come up with. I, there's, it's a, a sadistic example. Again, give me you know five people, and I arrange to have every one of them stabbed <laughs> in the shoulder, right? For a little while, they'll all be exactly the same. They'll be horrified. They'll be in pain. They'll be bleeding. You've got to stop the bleeding. You've got to prevent sepsis. But now, you know, wait a day or two, and there'll be tremendous differences between these people. Let's say I, I stabbed a hell's angel in the shoulder, and I know I'm stereotyping hell's angels, but he might think this was nothing. This is a pretty routine part of life and think nothing of it. Someone else will be deeply traumatized by it. Someone else will, with a hemophiliac-type problem, might have a difficulty time stemming the bleeding. Another person will, will be completely triggered because it reminds them of something that happened in their infancy or their childhood. All those other things start coming out as a, an acute condition then turns into a chronic one. So yeah, we have to go back. There's many ways of talking about the trauma side of things. But unless we cease being a conscious creatures, organisms, consciousness is part of it, and it unites everything about us. Mm-hmm. I find that so surprising that in the West, this is a hard one to crack. You know, if you're an acupuncturist, if you go to an acupuncturist and you tell the acupuncturist that you've got loose stools, the acupuncturist will automatically know that you worry too much. <laughs> automatically. That's wired into the system. And conversely, if you're a warrior, the acupuncturist will ask you about your stools and expect them to be loose. Huh. It's hardwired into that. And they make that connection, and people are just always amazed. Oh, oh, really? How'd you know that? Or if you've had a deep grief, the acupuncturist will assume that you're having respiratory issues, something's going on with the lung, or vice versa. If you've had long standing respiratory issues, going to assume 
that maybe you've had some kind of long-standing grief. Huh. So that hardwiring connection is there in Chinese medicine. And homeopathy is one step further. It's one and the same thing. We don't even need the concept of wiring. It's one and the same thing. So if you read about any of these medicines in a Materia Medica that I referred to before, every single remedy will have a mind section. So we'll talk about how the remedy, how that state of you know, inculcated in the person in the research phase is represented by thoughts, emotions, fears, peculiar behaviors, they all appear there. So consciousness at every stage, it's there. Even when you're treating something you know, very, very, a very, very mechanical, very something, you know, a very blunt kind of trauma. Interesting, interesting. Because usually with the example of the loose stool thing, people would immediately go to, well, what are you eating? What's your diet? But then to instead say, you know, you seem like a person who worries a lot. That's very interesting. Is there a common thought about people who have like chronic allergies or chronic sinus issues? Well, there's a lot of differentiation within that. It's interesting. There is, uh, there are remedies that I guess this would suit naturopaths who like to think that way, who are not really necessarily deep homeopaths, remedy made from certain kinds of pollens or from wheatgrass that are, quote unquote, you know, for allergies. More typically in my work, where the consciousness comes in, a remedy like calicarbonicum made from potassium carbonate, now this is interesting, it's a great example. Okay, someone comes in and says, I've got allergies. So I take their case and I find in taking the case that the person has, and it might take a while to get to this place, you know, it tends to be rather judgmental. They go in for black and white thinking. Nothing wrong with that. The, the positive side of that is they think categorically. They got a very clear idea of what's right and what's wrong. Maybe not about everything, but about things that matter. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and my litmus, litmus test question for this, of course, I've done this a long time. I'll say, you know, tell me something. Ever hear in your head yourself saying, I can't believe so-and-so said such a thing. I can't believe he would think that. Who on earth would not be pro-life? I mean, I'm come on, this is, you know, those exact words, I can't believe. Okay, so I hear that, I get my answer to that question. Then I'll say, do you ever get any gunk in your throat? Do you have a tendency to clear your throat? How'd you know that? Of course I do. I'm constantly clearing my throat. <laughs> and I'll say, oh, I noticed you've got some puffiness under your eyes, right? And they, yeah, how'd you know? Yeah, I've had that for years. If it's a woman, I might ask at this point, tell me something, have you ever had a miscarriage? Well, yeah, what's that got to do with anything? When did you have the miscarriage? Oh yeah, in the, in the first trimester. I say, bingo, thank you very much, you've given me the remedy. The remedy, calicarbonicum, connects the dots as follows. Yeah, the person is judgmental, they have black and white thinking, and they export their opinions where it matters. This mindset, and this is explaining why this is, goes beyond my pay grade, is, is mirrored at the level of the mucous membranes. The mucous membranes, epithelial tissue, they like to be moist, and they're all over the body. And when you get an accretion of moisture, they deal with it, so that it's, it's processed, so that the mucous membranes stay at a certain degree of moisture. When you need this remedy, calicarbonicum, there's an insensitivity to the presence of moisture. So they tend to be too damp or too dry. And that's why so-called allergies appear. You know, the allergist will be blaming the outside. Oh, you're oversensitive to those allergens. But the homeopath, if calicarbonicum is the case, no, it's on the other side of that boundary. You are a black and white thinker, and this is mirrored in your mucous membranes. 
And so they cannot tell about the accretion of dampness. So you're either, they're either too damp or too dry. That's why you have what you think are allergies. And if you've had a miscarriage in the first trimester, okay, the mucous membranes lining the endometrium, uh, when a blastocyst settles in there, they're too dry and the blastocyst sloughs off. And that's why you had a miscarriage looked at from the point of view of this remedy, calicarbonicum. Damn. So, <laughs> you know, I'm always thinking I, when I talk about this, I'm a fan of humor, and I think about a Saturday Night Live character, Stuart Smalley, I think it was, mm-hmm. used to say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. But he said something else I thought that was apropos. It's easier to wear slippers than to carpet the world. Mm. <laughs> okay, so carpeting the world would be the attack of the allergist who says, you can't have this, you can't have that. Oh my, and the person, oh, what am I going to eat? What am I going to, where am I going to go? No, you can't do this. You can't. Doing that is like carpeting the world, whereas putting on slippers would be taking the remedy, just fixing what, you know, your own, your own level of comfort. Pick the remedy, calicarbonicum, get past this judgmentality, and then lo and behold, you'll find that the world suddenly is more receptive to your presence. Wow. See, that's amazing because this audience knows that for the last 12 years of this show, anytime we talk about uh, alternative healing modalities of any kind. I bring up chronic allergies because I have them and it's like, well, I've tried a few different things. I've tried biofield tuning. I've tried acupuncture and it hasn't worked. And I like to promote alternatives to the medical system, but I treat myself as a guinea pig too. And I try to say to the audience, well, hey, this has worked or this hasn't. And Sometimes it's unfortunate because I'll get really motivated by a guest and they make a really great case for their thing. And then I have to say, well, it didn't work for me. But I feel like, you know, even this audience who's followed the show can tell that when you say the person would have black and white thinking, be a little judgmental and export their opinions, you kind of are describing me. And so <laughs> that's just really interesting. Now, what I have and, to take your case, Greg, would Doing that on the basis of this would be what I call cocktail level prescribing. Sure. Even sure. within homeopathy, there are many, many different versions of this, and I would hate to lose credibility by sending you out for that remedy. Yes, yes. There are nuances. But for I'll sure. tell you a funny story about it because it's one of my favorite remedies, and I, I just get such a kick out of it, just as my way of education. So I had a guy come to me who I've been treating successfully for some time. By the way, this remedy is also described in my book, In the Case of the Naked mm-hmm. Schoolgirl. At the end of it, you'll see that this child who takes all her clothes off in school winds up benefiting from this remedy. It, it solves her problem. But anyway, this particular guy, he wasn't taking his clothes off, but he had all kinds of stuff I was working with. And I guess he had allergies at some point. And anyway, I gave him this remedy, Cali Carbonicum. So some background about him. He was a banker. He was a runner. He was an environmentalist. And he came from a family where everyone was a staunch Republican for generations. And they had high-level political positions as Republicans and as governors and lieutenant governors and senators and assembly people. Everyone, as a matter of absolute knee-jerk action, would vote automatically vote Republican, regardless of anything. That's the other aspect of Cali Carbonicum. When you're a black and white thinker, you tend to be a traditionalist. You like things as they are. You don't like things to deviate too much. You like holidays. You like things as they are. And that girl in the book who took her clothes off, she was resisting transitions, and she just liked things as they are. And when she took off her clothes, she was also proclaiming a Kelly Carbonic point. This is my birthday suit. I've always been like this. I know exactly who I am. You know, you can't, hmm. you can't transition me. 
So this guy, anyway, I had been treating him for a while, and then I wound up having to give him calicarbonicum. And he showed up in my office the day after the election between Gore and the younger Bush. So he comes in, he's sitting there, and he's staring at me like he's not saying it. He's staring at me. So what the hell did you do to me? I said, what's the matter? What are you talking about? I voted Democratic. <laughs> <laughs> so the remedy, I mean, it changed something in him yeah. and opened him up. It loosened his black and white thinking to the point that he could no longer deny a certain gray area, which was that his party was really not satisfying his urges towards environmentalism. And he broke with this enormous tradition. It's one of my absolute favorite stories. Yeah, it's a good one. The mind-body connection is so weird. And through these little examples, I feel like we chip away at, at the conventional model and help people to understand the many multifaceted ways this can be true and how it can be used. And I can't believe we're 30 minutes into this thing and we haven't even really talked about the book, but it is really interesting, covers a little-known part of history I mean, we have talked before about how Rockefeller medicine came and took over. It's the words get clunky, traditional, alternative, you know, alternative medicine is the medicine that's used more throughout history and more throughout the world. But we say conventional to describe Rockefeller medicine. And they really did do a, a number on the language and flipping the script on that. But we have talked before about how the petrochemical pill industry took over holistic herbology, but we haven't really talked about how it factors into psychiatry and mental health. And this is just a, a huge, interesting thing that your book is all about. You use the term, which I think is very apt, the Dead Sea Scrolls of Homeopathy and Psychiatry. Tell people what you mean by that and broadly what is in that book. Well, Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, I mean, it was a trope. I mean, it's just sort of a joke, as if I, I had to discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. I would notice, looking at websites of medical schools and hospitals, looking at their origins, I knew that many of these places were originally homeopathic, but that was never mentioned. They found a way to scrub that stuff away. So my original task would involved, you know, digging deep into the origins. I'd find the name of the first superintendent of a hospital or the originator of a medical school and start researching them. And their colleagues, and I, and then I—that's how I'd find it. It was like going really an excavation job in history. And the internet, of course, is useful, but it has its limits. But still, it would lead you to the actual books that you get to read. So I would order these books. And places like University of Michigan has a digitalization process. Even Google has a great source, Google Books. They've been reconstituting these books in digital form. So I got a lot of material. And so I likened it to finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, just as a way of you know, getting people acquainted with the idea that this was you know, not that easy to do. In fact, it was deliberately, you know, pretty much deliberately shunted aside. It's not convenient. These are not convenient truths for today. Mm -hmm. you know, Johns Hopkins has been consistently putting out books that describe homeopathy as a sect or a heresy, and they're written by non-homeopaths. It sounds like not that important a thing, but that point of view contaminates the history departments of all the universities, especially the ones which have medical history departments. And it's not a good thing. It's just not a good thing. When your history is hijacked, you lose the ability to choose later on. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the backdrop for that. Yeah, it was very interesting stuff to find, but I couldn't believe how isolating it was because people would say, I didn't know that. And I said, well, that's why I wrote this. But you just feel very alone when you occupy a truth that other people don't have. And that compelled me to write this. I said, my God, I'm, I'm not going to keep this to myself. I absolutely have to get this out. And so I don't go crazy. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. So I don't think I'm the only person carrying this deluded belief out. Preferred realities have a lot of power. They really do. I um, bet. And you know that, Greg. I, I know you know that. <laughs> well, I definitely have my preferred realities. But in terms of that, kind of a segue is that when it comes to the Rockefellers and the robber baron class and the things they were doing back in the day, it is really all oil, energy, and medicine. And there's a real analogy that as you can unpack a book like yours and see actually these homeopathic hospitals were very widespread. They were preferred by people and they had better results. And then they just stuck all the toothpaste back in the tube. You can also go down a rabbit hole about energy and see that there used to be a network of electric taxis throughout New York and they would just swap out the batteries for a newly charged one and get back out on the road. And there were all kinds of interesting energy technologies that would blow the mind. You'd be like, there's no way. There's no way they had that way back then. Same goes for, you know, cars used to be able to run on alcohol, used to be able to run on hemp. And they just systematically removed all that stuff and said, nope, you run on oil only. And there's a side thread that prohibition was largely about alcohol as a fuel, not so much about alcohol consumption. But that was the kind of the cover story. But I just think this is always so interesting, this huge umbrella of things that have been suppressed in exchange for the profits of the robber barons in various areas. And you have a quote in the book where you say, sane asylums is a century and a half retrospective to a Camelot of healthcare, a time when an effective and utopian approach to mental illness prevailed. Knowledge of this flourishing homeopathic era and its advanced methods remains inconvenient to the economic interests of the psychopharmacology. Sane Asylum's aim is to examine this past history so that a new path forward in the care and treatment of the mentally ill can be imagined. And I just love that. I think that sums it up right there, what the, the book is about and trying to do. Help people understand the scope of these hospitals and how widespread they were back then, because it wasn't a small thing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to also say back to what your energy point. I grew up in New York City, and when I was a little kid, we had trolleys there. There were trolleys yeah. all over the place. Heartbreaking to rip those trolleys up and eventually the tracks so that cars can go through there. I mean, it was so much more livable a city. Mm. Yeah. What can I say? You, you're doing my job for me, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're laying this out. The hospitals, utopian thinking flourished back then. And so the asylums really tried. They married the moral care ethic of the Quakers and people like William Tuke with homeopathy, but also all kinds of utopian visions. And that involves self-sufficiency. So Selden Talcott's fantastic Middletown Hospital was, was a self-sufficient operation. He was a brilliant guy. He, he organized the plumbing, the inner structure of the buildings. He's the one who made use of the baseball field and brought baseball therapy into psychiatry. But the self-sufficiency of the operation was really a big deal. I wrote a blog recently telling the story about what, with this book, originally I proposed it to Springer Press in Europe, 
And there were three major publishing houses that historically brought out homeopathic texts and histories. And Springer was one of them. And with the European kibosh on homeopathy, they were pressured, absolutely pressured, not to make any more homeopathy books. I said, no, that's impossible. They'll have to make an exception for this. It's so much like this earlier book, 100 Years of Homeopathy. Well, they told me with a straight face that there was no difference between the allopathic moral care asylums at that time. With a straight face, they told me this. Complete nonsense. And as, as an example in my blog, I give two examples. One is that up the road, built one, one exactly one year earlier, was the Hudson River Asylum, almost exactly the same size as the Middletown Hospital. In fact, it was a site that the Middletown Hospital originally wanted. And that was a complete money pit. They lost $1.2 million of the taxpayers' money. It was excoriated in the New York Times. And yeah, they had moral care, but no homeopathy there. And then up the road, 125 miles away, was the Utica Asylum of Amariah Brigham, also supposedly a moral care institution, where they had the notorious Utica crib. So if you were acting out there, as opposed to being put into a camisole or being talked to gently by the nurses at Middletown, Amariah Brigham put you in his crib, which was like a, a very narrow coffin that you couldn't move in. You couldn't move your arms, couldn't be your legs. You were just absolutely inert in this little slat-constructed 18-inch-high coffin. And yeah, he did it to punish his clients, to break their spirit. Absolutely horrendous. And when you came out of there and you unhinged the top, that's where the expression to become unhinged came from. You were twice as crazy as you were when, as when you went in. Hmm. And great story. I, I, I think back to the baseball Selden Talcott created a baseball team called the Asylums to represent his Middletown Hospital, and they were a great team. They played major league teams. They beat pretty much everybody. And up the road at, in Utica, New York, which was one of the origins of minor league baseball, the Utica team was created, and they called themselves the Pentups. I find mm -hmm. this really so funny. So yeah. they were, that was a nod to the hospital and his and Amariah Brigham's notorious crib. But the point being that, yeah, there are significant differences between moral care institutions. And if you don't know that, if you're deprived of knowledge of the history, you lose choice. Yes. Back then, if you didn't know the difference between the Utica and Middletown, and he said, well, they're both moral care institutions, you might have found yourself in the Utica crib if you'd gone to Utica, but that would not have been the case at Middletown. Hmm. Yes. When you're deprived of the history, you lose the choice. That is a, a great phrase. And the baseball therapy section is quite interesting. It's like the ritual of the game just seemed to help people in some kind of weird macrocosm, microcosm way. Just, I don't know, maybe having something to do, but it's just so night and day and so kind of outside the box thinking that got them to do that sort of thing instead of just pumping somebody with pills and let me ask you about the suppression aspect, because if we kind of established that these were widespread, they were more popular, allopathic people and Rockefeller medicine people, they saw this as a threat. They're looking at it from a business perspective. A lot of times conspiracy and business tactics are really just the same thing, getting together and say, how do we make money and stop our competition? Well, what did they do? Because there are a couple of things that they did. Rockefeller working with Andrew Carnegie, uh, enlisting the education specialist, Abraham Flexner, author of the Flexner Report. You call that a watershed moment. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about this era of getting all this stuff 
basically removed from the medical system and leaving people with the only choice, allopathic medicine. Well, my chapter in the book, chapter 11, is Concessions to the Spirit of the Times. And it really was a, a pretty complex and slow-moving process. It didn't happen all at once. Yeah, the Flexner report was absolutely part of that. I don't think anybody could foresee how damaging uncontrolled capitalism could be. The force of capitalism, I mean, I guess I'm a Marxist on this point. Mm. You know, it is a juggernaut. It has a power. Homeopaths were pressured left and right from government agencies. Also, the money all flowed into this so-called scientific medicine. You know, well, they made all kinds of mistakes. They invited the allopaths onto the staffs of their hospitals, onto the faculties of their medical schools. And, you know, everybody did, you know, the scientific revolution, say what you may about the outcome with drugs, it had a huge appeal in, in terms of really trying to figure out what was going on in the body, the dissections, and all the, all the, the people had created instruments that they wanted to use to measure functions and to learn about the body in physiological terms. Everybody talked that talk, and everybody believed, even the homeopaths, that someday they would find an organic cause for uh, mental illness. They really did. And there were terms that everybody used that played into that. Dementia, praecox, and uh, paresis. But the difference was, the difference was that the homeopaths, even when they talked that route, and that, this would include William Morris Butler, who completely bought into the Craig Kraepelin's eugenics movement, and he produced a horrible book, you know, with pictures of so-called degenerates and so forth. Even so, the homeopaths, they continue to prescribe on the basis of the totality of symptoms and not on these bogus physiological discoveries. That's the big difference. There were some other watershed moments. I consider Frank D.C. Richardson the poster child for the apostasy of the movement at the Evans Memorial Center. He had every credential a homeopath could have, and he sold his soul, honest to God. He took all this money to build the Evans Center, and he started getting very pompous about that. Well, he would say that only he and the Evans Center knew all the mistakes the homeopaths had made, and he's going to get rid of all the deadwood. And the homeopaths couldn't really resist him because he was so prominent. He had so much money. And this was 1910. It's a, a very pivotal movement. And there are many versions of that all over the place. The Menninger Center, you know, the places that were originally homeopathic, they didn't disavow homeopathy. It's just that there was a spirit of the times. Menager's son was, a, I think, Carl. You know, the children would get into the business, and they would just concede to the spirit of the times and go in the scientific direction. And homeopathy got marginalized. I think it's just the power of capital. You can make money on something, and that drives everything. I'll tell you a story. When I was in China, I asked one of my physician mentors, I said, Dr. Liu, where is the uh, research department here? Thinking he's going to say, oh, we have a lab down the hall. I was studying acupuncture at the Nanjing College of Traditional Medicine. And he looked at me kind of funny. He said, what do you mean? I said, acupuncture is so old. How do you develop new treatment strategies? So he thought for a minute, and then he kind of smiled. He said, oh, 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 you mean the library. Hmm. <laughs> what he meant by was that was new treatments are discovered or refined, but they always go back to the old text to see what in the old text would substantiate their new approaches. Very, very much. I'm not a Talmudic scholar. I am Jewish, but I'm not a Talmudic scholar. But in the world of the Talmud, it's exactly the same way. You have to answer even the most modern questions. 
but you don't throw the old books away. You go back to the old books and find the precedent that some way or another relates to the modern circumstance. But the thing is, that doesn't make anybody any money. Having an old dusty library that only some people can read, and those old books were so written in a language so old that not everybody could even read them. It would be like someone being an English major and reading Beowulf in, in the original. It doesn't make any money for anybody. It doesn't play into the economic engine. Whereas scientific research, regardless of its outcome, whoa, boy, does it pay off. <laughs> There's so many things to study and, and to research and to substantiate and to debunk, you know, and so many things to try out. It makes jobs for people. It accesses resources. You cannot underestimate the power of that. And people love instruments, and they always think that they're going to get more information from a, an instrument than from somebody gently feeling your pulse or looking at your tongue. <laughs> it's too bad, but that's how things go. The power of the economic engine of, of capitalism is just astounding, and it's hard to resist. Right, right. And the nuances to economic models are a little over my head, but I mean, when it comes to capitalism, I just think free markets have just never been free. A privileged few control markets and suppress alternatives until they establish a monopoly and then they present everything as if, well, this is just the best way to do it. And in the case we're talking about now, it's just clearly not true. So, you know, in a total free market, when people have absolute choice to go to a homeopathic center or an allopathic center, sure, I support that. But it's just never really been that way. So these criticisms, a lot of them can be addressed by just taking this privileged elite that really started in the robber baron days and just finding some way to keep them from affecting policy, keep them from like legislating against their competition. I mean, that's kind of most of our problems, I think, boil down to that and the fact that a lot of people think the markets are free when they just are completely captured. And that is what it is. But another example of that is the creation of the American Medical Association. This is another big factor in how things got so backwards that you write about in the book. It's how they centralized and standardized the education and the practice of medicine so that every PhD graduate you know, that has come out of that system, they make fun of homeopathy because why would their educators lie to them? And it's just like, that's just another example of it. But I guess as we're coming up on the end of the first hour here, if you could take the best from this era in the 19th century that we're talking about, these utopian hospitals, something like the Middletown State Homeopathic Hospital that you call the mother church of these types of facilities, if you could take the best from this era and intertwine it with what we know now, any advancements that have come in our modern age, any new insights, what would your perfect modern hospital, homeopathic hospital look like? Yeah, I, that's in my fever dream at the very end of the book, in, in the last chapter, Investing in Sanity. You know, I'm a kind of a fan of bioneural feedback. It's amazing to me how little we've advanced in terms of connecting organic function of the brain, anything that you can measure with the treatment. You know, if you have a kid who has a special needs problem, they'll do this neurological workup. Have you ever encountered this? Parents come to me, they show me their neurological workup of their kid, maybe 15, 20 pages long. And at the end of it, they're recommending something for attention deficit disorder. You know, very few things have 
where you can really definitely see the connection between an organic head issue, brain issue, with a problem. A bullet going through a certain part of your head, that will have a certain effect. Um, a lot of it is not clear at all, even though people talk like that all the time. All the theories about chemical imbalance in the brain are nonsense. The whole idea of a broken brain is nonsense. But neurofeedback, again, it's not fringe. It's the purview of psychologists. They do what they call a brain map of your brain frequencies. And this is a very, very clear picture. And when you can interpret that, you actually can create an algorithm and have people go into a feedback protocol which adjusts for that. It's the most amazing thing. It's, and I can't think of any other modality in psychology or psychiatry in which you have that connection between an assessing instrument and an actual treatment. So that would be part, uh, yeah, to your question, I would like to bring the asylums back and at a manageable level, because back to the other thing, why they failed was they part of the success, they were too, they were too big. These states started sending everybody to these places, and they couldn't do good homeopathy when there's 2,000 people there, and they, they would underfund them, and they'd have bad staff. And they were bound to fail. They absolutely deteriorated as a basis of their success. But yeah, so if we reinvent them, and I like the idea of small asylums, where we can certainly put our clients who are so drug-involved and that we can detox them under safe conditions 24 hours out of the day and not lose them as soon as they have a regression, you know, back to the psychopharm business. We need new asylums, and we need to also respect the mentally ill, not be embarrassed about it as a stigma, but the embarrassment is we can't deal with them as human beings. That's the embarrassment. These are problems of life, and they can be grappled with directly, you know, gently with homeopathic remedies, with acupuncture, with massage, possibly hypnosis, neurofeedback, but give people a chance to really recuperate and enjoy their life. We don't want to warehouse people, send them back into the community all drugged up and pretend we've fixed this problem. How do you legislate against hypocrisy, Greg? I mean, you have to be a lot more honest about things. It can be done. I mean, places like Switzerland, for example, homeopathy is part of the medical system there. It can be done. It's not an intractable, completely intractable problem. But you have to have people who have a certain level of consciousness and a sense of responsibility in this area, and they aren't kidding themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like it. A little neurofeedback, some homeopathic remedies, acupuncture, a little baseball therapy, and uh, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. you've got a facility that can outperform the best of the best of what uh, Rockefeller Medicine has to offer. Stay tuned for when I create my mega crowdsourcing program. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And so as we're starting to wrap this thing up, one of the big goals with the book is to recognize this suppressed chapter of medical history and then use this knowledge to resurrect these modalities to the mainstream and show people, hey, this not, is not new. This has a rich, well-documented now history and we can just rely on that to help us out and bring this stuff back to the mainstream. And an important aspect of seeing homeopathy rise is that people need to be able to find good practitioners. Do you have any advice on finding good people or a network to use or some type of certification to look for when it comes to finding quality people in the fields of homeopathy or even acupuncture? Because a lot of times people might try it once or twice, not have results, and then dismiss the whole field. But there's clearly a range of talent within the field, right? How do we find the good people? Well, with acupuncture, it's really easy. 
everybody's licensed now. It's licensed in every state, which is really cool. When I started out, it was voodoo medicine. We had to practice needling at night secretly because putting a needle in somebody was illegal if you weren't a doctor. Huh. Now I'm amazed to say people come out of Ivy League schools and they become acupuncturists and no problem. Of course, it's not covered by insurance yet. That's one litmus test. Okay, homeopathy. Well, the gold standard for certification, and we do have certification, there's not much licensure for it. There might be one state that licenses homeopathic physicians. I think it's either New Mexico or Arizona. And there used to be a few. Connecticut used to do it. But right now, we kind of have to be settled for the CHC certification, the Council for Homeopathic Certification. And that's the uh, gold standard. So if you want to find somebody who's a good homeopath, you'll have good luck. Go to the Council for Homeopathic Certification site, CHC, and see who's licensed, who's certified in your state. The silver standard would be NASCH, the North American Society of Homeopaths. And they're also well-trained, but they don't take an examination to get their credential. That's kind of the only difference. The CHC is the more rigorous one. So you can find that. I don't know. We're always debating whether we want to get complete regulation control over these kinds of professions. That brings a lot of, <laughs> a lot of problems with it as well. Right. But homeopathy as yet is kind of a hodgepodge. You have naturopathic homeopaths. They may be credential themselves within that, within naturopathy. There's the American Institute of Homeopathy, which is for physician homeopaths, and they can credential themselves. So if you're a physician, you can practice anything you want. You're the godlike physician. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get trained in it properly, no matter who you are, acupuncturist, naturopath, chiropractor, you know you'd be getting the CHC degree. That's the most rigorous and really will put you right into the um, mainstream of, of classical homeopathic practicing. Great, great. That's so useful because sometimes we're just shooting in the dark and we don't have uh, the great results that we might want. But I'm definitely motivated to look into it now more than ever. And it's still a little mysterious, the processes. It almost seems like homeopathy is a form of or adjacent to alchemy when it comes to creating these remedies. Um, That's not an embarrassment. We're absolutely, we're uh, alchemists. I think so. I love it. Well, now I'm even more more interested because that's the <laughs> type of person that I want to be my healer and my family's healer. So I love it. But this has been really enlightening. And uh, I'm honored to play a small role in trying to turn the tide on Rockefeller medicine and return to the sane ways by having you here to talk about this stuff. Tell the people anything else they should know about your websites, your books or practice before I cut you loose. Yeah, you can check out my books at rightwhalepress.com. Even if you go to the website for Sane Asylums, and there are quite a few of them, Simon & Schuster has one, Inner Traditions has one, you'll get access to portals concerning what I do. In terms of what can be done, I'd like to revolutionize what's happening at the level of academia. As I say, I think it's an embarrassment that I had to write this book. It should have been written by uh, at least one or two historians. And that's a failing, that's a shortcoming at the level of academic history either in the general history departments or the medical history departments. There's a lot of collateral damage when your history is hijacked. And petition your local college or, you know, to teach this history. I guess getting this book into their hands would be step one. But we all need to fight for our history. We don't want to become what somebody else thinks we are. We don't want to lose our history to somebody who finds it inconvenient and wants to promote something that will do us harm based on their self-interest. So many things to do. I, I, I think that's about it. Your interviewing me was a fantastic boon. Don't sell yourself short, Greg. And that introduction you gave was you know, out of this world. 
your uh, most articulate and knowledgeable interviewer I've had so far. Wow. Well, I certainly appreciate that and all the, the work you've done. Thanks again. It's been really great talking with you. Keep fighting the good fight out there. Take care, Greg. Thanks so much. Hallelujah, homeopathic higher side chatters. How about that? A guy who knows a lot about a lot, happy with how this turned out. I've become a big Jerry Cantor fan. He wrote a book that covers a pretty unique and underappreciated time in American medical history, as well as being a longtime expert in homeopathic practice. So weaving through both of these subjects to me made for a compelling two hours. I could understand some people saying, geez, another show with a medical theme? That's three in a row. And I suppose that's true. I personally think George Wiseman, Dr. Robert Malone, and Jerry Cantor are pretty far apart, but I could understand a person having that opinion. The truth is, I have two other episodes recorded that have nothing to do with medicine, but I switched up the release order just a bit because I wanted to get Dr. Robert Malone out pretty much right away, and one of the others just took a little more time to work through in editing. So this too much medical stuff thing is a consideration I made when I booked my guests. And even though I did keep the diversity high, I then went against my own logic and changed up the release order. So it is what it is. But we spent half the time with George talking about alternative energy and half the time with Dr. Malone talking about transhumanism and the goals of Agenda 2030. And both of those, clearly, I consider to be quite different than an expose on moral care alternative facilities to Rockefeller medicine and how they were attacked by the system and eliminated as competition. Plus, Jerry makes homeopathy sound almost magical, and I appreciate his approach to healing. I will give him props because it took a lot of balls to say all throughout COVID that, yeah, there's nothing really special about this. I treat it the same way I treat any illness in my practice. And we haven't had any problems. That's no small thing to say, right? And the whole thing about viruses was the big criticism with Dr. Malone. Oh, he's controlled opposition because he supports the general virus model. Well, I think he gave us a lot of juicy stuff that would be worth any listener's time. And if you, for yourself, are sure viruses don't make us sick, great. 90% of the interview wasn't even about that. Maybe even 100%. And even if you think a person is controlled opposition, I still see a lot of value in parsing through the stuff they're saying in a lot of cases. And with that one, I got comments like, you should learn about Dr. Tom Cowan or Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Well, we've had Dr. Kaufman here before, and he made a great case for his position. And I've mentioned Dr. Cowan many times. He's turned me down. He's not interested in being on THC for some reason. But the bigger point that I would want to make is that I try to offer up a wide range of alternative takes and angles. I don't plant my flag on one conclusion and now every potential guest must check that box. I definitely keep it alternative, but I also try to guard against info silos and echo chambers. So if you always want this show to be one thing, you're going to be disappointed. I have no problem with really extreme opinions like viruses don't make us sick, which is probably the most extreme opinion in medicine, or 
the earth is flat. We talk to people all the time who slide that in there, and that's all good. But if your criteria to listening to anyone is that they check boxes like that, you're going to have about five to ten people in rotation because that's a small club. Anyway, Jerry was a lot of fun. We talked about angles I hadn't considered before, and I'm glad he gave me some guidelines to look for when trying to find a practitioner with his sort of perspective. That's pretty valuable to me. When he connected certain symptoms to certain social tendencies or personality types, that was a highlight. Explaining how certain things can happen to a person and in the short term, something like a stabbing is going to look the same, but then over time, maybe there's a connection between who heals faster and who doesn't with their previous traumas or their thought processes. That was pretty interesting. Is there something in that mix as to why someone might get an infection on their cut and someone else wouldn't? I'm not sure, but I like the creative ways of looking at stuff like that. And really, when I find a guy who has dug up a suppressed or hidden part of history in science or medicine or any of the areas that stepped on the profits of the robber baron class and thus were taken out of the textbooks, almost out of spite, I want to help get that history back out there. And when Jerry calls these documents he found the Dead Sea Scrolls of Medicine, I think that's just a great way to describe it too. So, lots to like, lots to like. But we are breaking from the broad category of health and wellness for a while. Looking at what I have booked through the next two months, it's pretty wild and all over the place. I only have one doctor in that lineup, and that's because she is one of the best deep divers into the mRNA shot data. And at this point in time, I think that's an appropriate deep dive to do. Nothing crazy obsessive, it's not the SHOT Show or anything like that, but as we get more info, as time goes on, if the data keeps showing disturbing trends, we gotta get into it. But 9 out of 10 episodes on the schedule are nothing close to health and wellness for the ones who are getting a little worried. And it's all good, I got it. Just trust the plan, or something like that, right? Of course, every episode is better when you hear the whole thing. As a Plus member, today's second hour got into how the philosophy of eugenics affected the history of psychiatry, why there is such an overlap between conspiracy research and mental health issues, Jerry's case for terrain theory, and what really makes us sick, a little conversation about 5G and pollution as mass causes of disease. Behavior of individuals versus behavior of groups. Spirits, demons, and mental health. We talked about why homeopaths are closer to shamans than family doctors and how Jerry starts a session to get under the hood of a person. We also talked about his very bold book, The Autism Reversal Toolbox, and his ayahuasca experience. Just click the top link in the show notes right in any podcast app you're using if you want to get started on the seven-day free trial or follow the prompts at thehiresidechats.com. Five shows a month, all the cover songs I use, some bonus videos and stuff, an active comment section, the forums, the community joint session shows when they happen. 
the Plus Show RSS feed that works just like the free one, blah, blah, blah. Put it on your Christmas list if you feel so inclined. We have a gifting system built right into the purchase form too. I'm doing what I can. Help me help you. In higher side news, we had a big old Black Friday Cyber Monday sale on merch for those who noticed, and it was wildly popular. So many new THC t-shirts and hoodies and coffee mugs are out in the world thanks to everyone who picks something up. Of course, if you're a Plus member, you get 10% off merch anyway, all the time. Always be closing. And I was also just a guest on three other shows, quite frankly, which was maybe seven or ten days ago and a lot of fun. Then the Gramerica guys had me back on after spending two weeks in Egypt, so I caught them up on all the news they missed from Kanye's trainer to FTX to Balenciaga, and that was a lot of fun too. And then also, much fun, Gordon had me back on Rune Soup to talk about our top 10 conspiracy books of all time. He had his top 10 list, and I had mine, and we just talked about them and why they made the list, and it was awesome. Three really fun guest spots for those who don't think they hear me talk enough on THC, if those people exist. And if you find that those episodes aren't out yet, I imagine they would be the next ones on deck. Also, I guess if you know any other podcasts you'd like to see me on, let them know. I'm ready. Finally, let's look at the calendar and see where THC fans are meeting up with THC fans. Hiresidemeetups.com is the place to do it. And for December, we got two meetups happening on December 3rd, one in Philadelphia, one in High Springs, Florida. Then on December 4th, one in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. December 8th, the LA Truthers coming together once again. December 10th, don't make me say it. Patchogi, New York, and Gray Bull, Wyoming, much easier to pronounce, also December 10th, Vancouver, Washington, and Glendale, California. December 11th, we have the Asheville, North Carolina meetup, and December 17th, there is one in Fayetteville, New York. And I think that closes out what we have on the books for December, but it's looking pretty action-packed, except for the week of Christmas, which anyone could understand. But that's it. Go to the calendar for more details. And if you don't hear about anything close to you, hop on there and make your own. There's really no agenda for me. It's just a fun and free way to make sure you have more like-minded people in your local life. Connected through this weird stuff podcast, because that's what I got to offer. That said, I hope you guys enjoy the holidays and succeed in being the best versions of yourself you can be. Less friction and more love, right? Smooth out any remaining disturbances in your field and brace for 2023. I'm getting out of here. Big thanks again to Jerry. Sane Asylums is the book. I've done my part. Your move, healthy hospital history suppressors, moral care concealers, and homeopathy hiders. Your fucking Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. That makes you fat Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry Don't tell me Don't tell me lies Discipline is no fun I find Denial makes it all gone 
Every now and then I try to quit and leave it be But it's too hard to turn it off It's getting worse and yet It's learning It's learning time See, discipline is no fun I find Denial makes it all gone And I don't have to face it That's right And you're wrong Wrong Don't tell me lies Discipline is no fun I find Denial makes it all gone And I don't have to face it That's right So many arms expanding off the big conspiracy And every one of them has got a couple hooks into me And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check, mail to the P.O. Box... And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. 
Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.